For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we're into Jesus' final week. We saw last time he's, he rode into Jerusalem to the praise of the crowds. They're shouting praise to the Messiah, the son of David. Jesus comes in, he cleanses the temple, he kicks out all the merchants. He then shows up and he goes head to head with the religious leaders and takes them down. They send all of their most brilliant minds at him to try to expose him as a fraud and instead the opposite happened. He exposed them for who they really were. And this evening, we're going to see, we pick up the action where we left off last time. This is probably Tuesday of his final week. And it says that as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. In another place, he says they like to blow the trumpets. They like to call attention to their giving of their, their great financial gifts. But then he also, nobody seemed to notice this person, this poor widow, came and put two very small copper coins in there. That would, be, that would add up to about a penny. Not much. But Jesus has a different perspective. He says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And so, we, why was this woman extolled for her giving? One was probably how she did it, without the attention, without the showiness, but also what Jesus really calls attention to is the sacrificial nature of it. You know, some of us were kind of poor, we're students, and we're like, why should I give it all? It doesn't matter. I don't really have much money. There's a lot more people with a lot more money that give. Well, this passage right here says, no, actually, what God wants you to do is he wants you, he's not saying you should give everything you have to live on. That's, that's not the example at all. What he's saying is he's comparing the quantities here, and he's saying even though that looked like not much in God's eyes, that was worth a lot. So kind of a cool little story, but it, it also sets the scene in the temple, and the disciples, they start looking around, and they start talking about the majestic stonework of the temple. And the memorial decorations on the walls. The, the temple in the time of Christ was absolutely magnificent. I've shown pictures of that the past several weeks. These, the stonework, the stones in the temple, and the stones in the wall of the temple were also stones in the wall of the city because it was right up against the edge of the city. Josephus talks about these temple stones. He says they were 40 feet long, 18 feet deep, and 12 feet tall. You know, 40 feet... That means the biggest of these stones could be about the width of this room. You know, 12 feet tall, you know, I'm 6'5", I'm so we're talking at least past that bar, maybe not quite to the ceiling. 18 feet deep, you know, that's from here to close to the back row in this section here. That's the size of one of these blocks. I can't imagine how they would do this. Well, one way they, they could tell is they would chisel them into cylinders, they'd roll them in place, and then they would bury them up and they would, they would cut the sides off so that it would be square on three sides and then round on the bottom is one thing I've heard. But absolutely magnificent. He also says it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun, it reflected back a very fiery splendor. It was truly a sight to behold. You know, here's a picture of one of these stones just to give you a perspective. That's actually me standing in front of it. <laughs> No, it's really not. Uh, but yeah, this isn't even one of the bigger ones. But you can see the, the foundation stones that were below grade. You can still see those today. And so they're admiring these massive stones. They're so proud of this temple. 
that Herod had, had basically upgraded from the one they were, that was built in the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. But Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And so Jesus says, all this impressive masonry, it's all going down. It's not the first time he's predicted this either. Remember a couple weeks ago on the triumphal entry, he looked down on Jerusalem with tears in his eyes, and he said, the days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will build an embankment against you, and they'll encircle you and hem you in on every side. They would put the city under siege. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So he faults them for their inability to recognize the signs that, uh, that the Messiah had come and that their end was near. <clears throat> Josephus tells us about the, the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction here. He says, Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of Emperor Titus, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground that there was nothing left to make those that came near believe it had ever been inhabited. These great stones were leveled so thoroughly by Titus and his soldiers that you could hardly even tell anyone had ever lived there. Pretty amazing. In fact, uh, they, they stripped down the temple. Part of the reason they took, the, they took the stones off of one another is because in the midst of the fighting, when Titus finally entered the city, he said, he, according to Josephus, Titus said, let's leave the temple alone. But somehow a fire started in the temple and the whole thing went up in flames. A lot of the gold melted and the soldiers, under the belief that gold had kind of melted in between the stones, they pulled stone from stone to get everything that had gone in between the stones. They also, just as a side note, Rome took all, the, all of the money and wealth they got from the temple, brought it back to Rome, and with that, it was used to build the Roman Colosseum. Just a little historical fact. In fact, right outside the Colosseum, you can see a relief of the Roman soldiers carrying back a big menorah and some other paraphernalia from the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. No picture of the Ark of the Covenant, unfortunately. So the search is still on. <laughs> Here's a picture of these stones as well. You, you can visit these today outside, um, uh, kind of around the base of, of where the temple used to be in Jerusalem. They've excavated some of this. <clears throat> they said, teacher! When will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place? They couldn't believe that Jesus was saying this. They wanted to know when this was coming. Matthew is a little bit more specific here on their question. For one, he tells us it was later, probably later that same day. So we're talking Tuesday, late afternoon, evening, when Jesus is out on the Mount of Olives just east of the city. This is the, 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 the mountain he came over into on the triumphal entry. So his disciples came to him there and they asked him, tell us when will all this happen? And what, will signal, what sign will signal your return? Your parousia is the word you hear sometimes. And the end of the world. And so the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him two questions on the Mount of Olives. Jesus' answer will go on to become known as the Olivet Discourse, the teaching on the Mount of Olives. But they're asking two questions. When is this going to happen? This, this tearing of stone from stone in the temple. What force could come in and tear these down? And what sign will signal your return in the end of the world? You know, they didn't think Jesus was going to go away and come back. That return is the term for the, the triumphal entry of the king when he finally comes in and sets up his kingdom, exercises his authority. Well, they thought these two were the same. They thought if that temple gets, and these walls get torn down, that must be the end of the world. 
But what Jesus knows is that their two questions actually refer to two different events. There'll be one event in 70 AD where the temple gets torn down and Jerusalem gets torn to the ground. There'll be another event later, hasn't happened yet obviously, when the world will end. And so Luke's account of this focuses more on the fall of Jerusalem, but it still contains material about the end times. That's partly because of that chapter we skipped in Luke 17 that I said we'd go back to. Luke's already rolled out some of Jesus' teaching on the end times, so he's going to focus more on the fall of Jerusalem, but he's going to include both. Matthew and Mark include some about the fall of Jerusalem and the near-term predictions, but they're going to focus on the end of the world. So we actually have three different records of this teaching, each with a slightly different approach to it. <clears throat> and this has become known, like I said, of the, as the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus' main teaching, his greatest teaching on eschatology, and that's just a fancy word that means the study of the last things. It's based on a Greek word. This is an important subject for us today. You see, Jesus, he thought history was headed somewhere. Unlike a lot of world religions that thought history was just a repeating cycle, he says, no, there's a line from start to finish. It had a beginning point, it has an ending point. And it has, it's an important subject because, for one, it's a warning that this is headed somewhere and he's trying to get your attention. The Bible has predictive prophecy throughout, some that have already been fulfilled, even in the day of the one that spoke it, some that were fulfilled dozens or hundreds of years after they were written down, some that have been fulfilled only in recent years, and then some that still haven't been fulfilled yet. What it's doing is it's trying to authenticate that message so that you know that it comes from God. It puts this life into perspective. It's easy to get caught up in current events and caught up in the events of my life. And what, when, when we study teachings like this, it helps us to zoom back and to see the bigger picture and to see this is all headed somewhere. And this thing that I'm super worried about, my anxieties, it puts those into perspective in light of the bigger picture. It also is God's unique method of authentication. This is something you know, a lot of people think, don't all religions have predictive prophecy? No, they don't. The biblical predictive prophecies are totally unique. And we're going to take a look at some of these tonight and over the next couple of weeks especially. You know, what happens when human beings try to predict the future? I'll tell you what we get. We get something like Back to the Future 2. <laughs> a movie produced in the late 80s depicting life in 2015, which was last year. I mean, if these guys couldn't even get it right 25 years in the future, I mean, if they were right, we'd have, instead of going to the gas station, we would just use a garbage disposal to have fuel for our car. You know, we'd all be having, wearing haircuts from the 1980s. <laughs> and what about the hoverboards? Okay, I guess technically they have hoverboards today, but they have wheels, and they also explode when you try to ride them. <laughs> I wish they had hoverboards for real. That'd be awesome. But they don't, and they, they couldn't even get it right with, with their millions of dollars and all the most brilliant minds of Hollywood, <laughs> which is saying something. <clears throat> or what about, some people are like, okay, yeah, but what about Nostradamus? What about him? Didn't he predict the future? Yeah, Nostradamus, okay. This could only be said by someone who's never read Nostradamus. I've got two short little videos from a film produced by the History Channel on Nostradamus. The movie was called Nostradamus, colon, 2012. And it was made in 2009. 
The goal is to capitalize on a lot. Remember when the Mayan calendar was coming to an end and it was supposedly going to be the end of the world? They were trying to capitalize, I think, on that hype. And so it's got, it's got several predictions of his throughout, and then they're interviewing Nostradamus experts, and they're interpreting these quatrains. He wrote these, you know, just a bunch of four-line quatrains, and they're going to they're sh- show a couple of these quatrains and try to interpret them for us. Let's go ahead and kill the lights. Nostradamus predicted a legion of problems arising in our times. The recent and devastating downward spiraling of financial markets is another crisis currently plaguing the world. According to some, this too appears to have been anticipated in Nostradamus's quatrains. Within the closed temple, the lightning will pierce. It injures the citizens within their fort. Horses, cows, men, the way will hit the wall. Through famine, drought, under the weakest arm. If you think of the closed temple being the stock exchange and the temples of money on Wall Street, then they have been struck by lightning. Uh, they've been demolished, in fact. And so we, we catch the sense of this, of the dismay and, and the disruption caused by the economic disasters of recent months. Nostradamus says that the, uh, there will be mobs of people who will storm the banks uh, trying to get their money back, but the banks will be closed, uh, the money will be useless, and will be thrown out and burned like paper. Basically, banking systems are going to come to an end. Okay. Did you guys follow that? Did you see the link between the prophecy and the interpretation? All right, I'm going to show another one here. You try to get the great city of the maritime ocean, surrounded by a swamp of crystal, in the winter solstice and the spring, will be tried by a terrible wind. What is it? A city, a city that's in a swamp. He might be talking about downtown New Orleans in Hurricane Katrina. I had a friend call me up when Katrina was happening another Nostradamus fellow, and he wanted to talk about Century 9, Quatrain 48, because it appeared to him that this was a very direct and exact description of Katrina and all the other hurricane disasters. Okay. So there's a couple remarkable exact descriptions of the financial meltdown, and of Hurricane Katrina. I mean, how could you miss it? A couple of problems, though, with Nostradamus. One, there's no context. It's not like this is a, a whole chapter about Hurricane Katrina, and that's one of, the, one of the statements that's made about it. Each quatrain, unrelated to the previous one, it's more like a collection of proverbs just plopped down, and you can pick, each, you can pick one out and interpret it however you want. You also have to ignore the contradictory parts. So Katrina, it's, it's the winter solstice. That's when it happened. Actually, it was the end of August when the flood occurred in 2005. And so you have to pick and choose. There's, there's, as you watch this movie, you'll see a lot of dot, dot, dots where they're clipping out the parts that don't fit. There's no syntax or grammar. It's not even necessarily sentences here where you can develop a flow of thought. It's, it's phrases. 
It's lists of things. There's also no correlation. You can't look up his eight different predictions about Hurricane Katrina or the collapse of the, the stock market in 2008. No, you can't do any of that. It's just one time, anybody can just look at it and read their own meaning into it. And this is what you get when you looked at somebody like Nostradamus, and I, I bring this up because I want you to think about what we're going to see from Jesus here in the rest of Scripture. And I want you to think about the difference between this and that. Jesus starts out by saying, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time's near, don't follow them. Yeah, so he really warns us of two equal and opposite errors when it comes to end times. For the one, he says, make sure you don't miss the signs that God does send. We saw that in Luke 19, 44, where he rebuked them for not recognizing the time of their coming. And why does he give us so much teaching if we're supposed to completely ignore it all? On the other, on the other hand, make sure you don't follow false signs that God hasn't sent. You know, some people, on the one hand, they see the end times wackos, and they see the billboards that says the world's going to end on this date, and they see the latest movie on this, and they're just like, you know what, this sounds like something I read in the tabloid at the grocery store. And, and that would be wrong. That would be disobedient to what Jesus is saying here. So we don't want to read into things that aren't there, but we also don't want to miss the things that are there. And so we want to, we want to kind of take an approach here to interpreting these that you don't need some special expert. You can just read what it says, and it becomes pretty clear as you put the different passages together. He says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, fearful events, and great signs from heaven. These are what Jesus calls, in his Matthew passage, he says these are the beginning of the birth pains. These are the events that, you know, they were happening in his day, they're happening today, they're going to increase in intensity as we get toward the end. And, and we're not going to even talk about these this week uh, because we don't have time, but this is why we've got two more weeks set aside for this. But these are the things that he, that he said, but he says before all this, so he, he almost seems to be talking about the time before the end, but then he rewinds to the present day, in his day. And he says, they're going to seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison and you'll be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. Yeah, we're going to see plenty of this when we study on into the book of Acts, the difficulty and pain that Jesus' disciples went through for following him. Some of us are surprised we start following God and there's problems. Jesus warned us of all of this in advance. And he says it's only going to get worse as we get closer to the end. He says, if you're dragged into court or before kings, he says, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Yeah, think how stressful this could be to sit there and wonder, what if I get dragged in before the Roman courts? What if I get dragged in before Caesar himself, like we're going to see the Apostle Paul did? They could be racked with anxiety. God said, look, don't worry about that. If that happens, I will show you what to say when the time comes. Now, this verse doesn't mean that I don't need to prepare for my Bible teaching that I've got coming up. <laughs> the context is specifically persecution. 
He says, you'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends. They'll put some of you to death. So your closest members of your family, your friends, in some cases, are going are to stab you in the back. And you just need to be prepared for that, guys. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Well, that seems kind of contradictory. He says in verse 16, some of you are going to die. And then in 18, he says, but yet not a hair of your head will perish. Does it mean they're going to kill you, but they're not going to mess up your hair at all in the process? (laughs) Well, some people think what this means is in the big picture, eternally, you know, that word perish is a pretty strong term. Like Jesus said earlier, he says, "Don't, don't worry about those that have the power to kill the body, but the one who has the power to destroy the, the soul, to throw you in hell. You know, this is the strong, strong use of perish. So he's like, look, even if they kill you, you're going to have eternal life. I guarantee you. So really, you, you can't lose in this whole situation. Some people think it's that. It's, it's kind of looking at it from an eternal perspective. Other people think maybe what he's talking about is you will be safe through the disaster that Jesus is about to predict. He goes on to say, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. Yeah, Jesus is going to predict a specific future event, the thing that's going to take place in 70 AD. He's going to predict that right here. And he's going to warn the Christians ahead of time how they know when it's coming and how to get out of it. Check it out. He says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. All right, What he's predicting here is not actually 70 AD. He's referring to an event that happened in 66 AD. Check it out. There was this guy named Cestius Gallus. He was the governor of Syria. And when the Jewish Jewish revolt started in 66, the Romans sent him down to Jerusalem with 30,000 troops to put this thing down. He was supposed to be pretty, pretty ruthless in this. He won several battles, took several cities, won several battles on his way marching down to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, he surrounded the city, just like Jesus said was going to happen, and was there for nine days under siege. Now, nine days is really not long enough for a good siege. You know, you really just get into the stuff at the back of the pantry after nine days. But they would surround these cities, they're trying to starve the people out, get some to defect, weaken the opposing army. But then a very strange thing happened. Josephus puts it this way, the Roman Jewish historian who was there at the time. He says, Cestius, had he but continued the siege a little longer, would certainly have taken the city. But he was hindered from putting an end to the war that very day. Josephus is like, what was he doing? It then happened that Cestius recalled his soldiers from the palace. He retired from the city without any reason in the world, Josephus tells us. Inexplicable. He withdraws. He starts to march further north. He gets ambushed. He suffers an embarrassing defeat. Tacitus describes it this way. He says, the rebellious Jews routed the governor of Syria when he came down to restore order. They rebuffed him. 
And so he said, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Not that it's here, but it's near. He says, at that moment, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's the area around Jerusalem. There were mountains to the east and the northeast of there. Very, very mountainous area. If you're in the city, get out. If you're not in the city, in the country, don't go into the city. See the earlier part about the mountains. <laughs> it's going to be painful. It's going to be hard. But now is the time to go. And that's exactly what happened. Some of the early Christians actually heeded this warning we read from ancient historical documents. Epiphanius, church historian from the 300s AD, he says the Nazarene disciples were living in Pella, which is far to the north, after they moved from Jerusalem. Why did they move? Well, Christ told them to leave Jerusalem and withdraw because it was about to be besieged. Okay, so here's Jerusalem. In 66 AD, Celestia surrounds the city, withdraws, and then the Christians flee to the mountains at that point. Some of them go up to Pella here. It wasn't until 70 AD that Titus returned and got the job done. He actually finished what they were sent to do. The thing that Jesus warned them was going to happen, and it was from there that it was, it was a full three years later before they finally took down the last band of rebels down at Masada, which you maybe have heard of Masada as well. That was the tail end of the Jewish war, 66 to 73 AD. And so Jesus predicts the future in the short term, and the Christians benefit from it. You know, some people are like, well, maybe Luke wrote this after the fact. Okay, for one, why would he even write it? Everybody would know it's after the fact. Two, why wouldn't he record the fulfillment of it in his book of Acts if it's after the fact? Wouldn't that be the perfect opportunity to point back to this prediction? But he didn't, because the book of Acts ended after the book of Luke, and the book of Acts ended before this, these events had happened. Early 60s AD is when Acts and Luke were done. He says, this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that's been written, this, this leveling of Jerusalem. You know, it fulfills the prophecies of Christ, but maybe Jesus had in mind the Old Testament warnings to Israel, which said, look, I made this nation, God says. I've protected you. If you rebel against me, there's going to come a time when I'm just going to let you be conquered. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament at times. And this appears to be the final occurrence of this. Right here. The fall of Jerusalem in 70. He says, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. He's like, look, you do not want to be pregnant or have a newborn. When this goes down, it is going to be hard enough for a person at full strength to survive, much less somebody who's got to get up every two hours to feed the baby. He says, there'll be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. And so what we see here in Luke's description of the fall of Jerusalem, we see some differences between what he's describing here and what Matthew and Mark describe, they describe a similar but different event. Another disaster that's going to happen to Jerusalem. And theirs is not the one from 70 AD. Theirs is still future. Something that happens before the end of the world. Let's, let's see Matthew's Jerusalem disaster. Let's see how Matthew describes his. You know, in Matthew's, there's a different signal for the believers to know that the end is coming. Here's what Matthew says. He says, when you see standing in the holy place 
the abomination that causes desolation, which is spoken of through the prophet Daniel. That's an Old Testament prediction. Let the reader understand, he says. Don't miss this part, readers. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, so apparently in Matthew's version, it's not when the city's surrounded that you flee. No, it's when they've come all the way into the inner circle, when they've actually come into the, in, the holy place in the temple, that that holy place is going to be defiled by some sort of a sacrifice, like one that took, actually that took place back, that was predicted by Daniel as well in the Old Testament. It's going to be defiled. And he says, when you see that, get out of there. But think about it. Some people are like, well, this is referring to when Titus surrounded the city and, and tore down the temple. Okay, if that's true... Let's say Titus and his soldiers are in there desecrating the temple. Wouldn't it be way too late to flee at that point? Many people have already died. Maybe hundreds of thousands if Josephus is right. Josephus says another 100,000 were taken prisoner and carted off. Well, wouldn't that be too late? It's not too late in seven, in the, with the 66 AD prediction um, <clears throat> if, it's, if it's when the city is surrounded. And so there's a different signal for the believers in Matthew's. Also, Matthew, the one he predicts, inaugurates the greatest suffering in the history of the world. He says, then there'll be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Well, I mean, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, that was pretty bad, but it wasn't that bad. It wasn't the greatest suffering that's ever been experienced in, up until that point in history and any time since. The one that Matthew's predicting will be. You think we've had some bad sufferings? Wait till you see this one here. He also says, the one in his prediction threatens to wipe out humanity. He says, unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Well, the one in 70 AD, that was not on the, uh, the cusp of wiping out the human race. It didn't need to be cut short for that reason. It was, it was a local skirmish. It was a local war. It was a big one, but it was local. Most people in the world never heard about this. And finally, Matthew says that his happens right before the end of the world. Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation, he says the great, this is called the great tribulation. Luke uses a different world. He says it's a great distress. Matthew says this is a great tribulation. But immediately after that, they'll see the Son of Man coming on the crowds, clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Well, that didn't happen immediately after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Any fulfillment of that would have to be totally spiritualized and would be a farce. Even though some people try to say that this has already happened as well. That Jesus already came. And so Matthew's Jerusalem disaster is supposed to be right before the end of the world. But the one that Luke predicts, Jesus says at that point, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Jews, will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so Matthew's is right before the end of the world. Luke's is right before what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. What is he talking about here? the times of the Gentiles. That's something different than the end of the world. And so we conclude, Matthew and Luke are describing two distinct but related events. And Mark follows Matthew in his. Two distinct but related events. 
Or another way of saying it is the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD is a type of a future Jerusalem disaster right before the end of the world. Biblical predictive prophecy sometimes is straight up prediction. Sometimes it also speaks in terms of types. You know, this was the, the Greek word for the mold that they would use to, for example, stamp a coin, okay, or, a, or whatever. You know, you'd kind of carve your mold and you'd take your soft metal and you'd jam it into there. And then you'd look at it and you'd see the mold matches the thing molded. It's the type and the anti-type. And so what he's saying is, you know, you got the Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then boom, you've got another disaster in Jerusalem that's going to take place at the end of human history. And the two are similar but different. And you see this a lot with end times events. Things that happened in the, in the past kind of foreshadow or get, fill in some of the detail on things that are going to happen in the future. So what does Jesus predict here? Well, I'll tell you. Let's summarize this. Jerusalem will be surrounded and conquered, we saw in 1944, and also it's implicit and explicit here. The temple torn to the ground, not one stone is left upon another. That Jews will be scattered among all the nations. That Jerusalem will be controlled by the Gentiles. And that that will last until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Huh. That is fascinating. That Jesus is predicting ahead of time that a nation would be uprooted from their land, scattered across the world for a long time, and then brought back to that very same land and brought back into control of their chief city. The regathering of Israel, one of the most remarkable prophecies in the Bible. Predicted by Jesus. After being scattered among the nations for a long time, the Jewish nation is regathered before the end times and will once again regain control over Jerusalem. We read it right there, right? This is truly remarkable, and this appears to have been fulfilled in our day. After being scattered across the world for almost 2,000 years, in the late 1940s, after the Holocaust and World War II, the United Nations re-established the nation-state of Israel. On the date of their independence, on the date that they were declared a nation, they were simultaneously attacked by eight Arab countries surrounding them from the Middle East, somehow won that battle, won that war, took more territory, and have taken further territory since in subsequent attacks and counterattacks. And so we see a nation going extinct and then coming back into existence. Where in the history of the world has this happened? A nation uprooted, scattered, and then regathered in their land even to retain their national identity. What's amazing about this is this is not only predicted in the New Testament, but it's predicted throughout the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah chapter 11. God says, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. Yeah, he he did send them off to Babylon in the 500s BC. He brought them back, but he says it's gonna happen again. They're gonna be sent not just to Babylon, but to nations all over the world, and then he's going to bring them all back. He says those who remain in Assyria and northern Egypt, southern Egypt, Ethiopia, Elam, Babylonia, Hamath, and all the distant coastlands. He basically names all the countries in that vicinity, and then he also says, and all the distant coastlands. They're going to be brought back. 
How do we know? What's the context? Look at the previous verse. He says, in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. That's their term for the Messiah. He said, there's going to come a king someday, descended from David, who's going to rule the world, and he's going to live forever. It's no surprise when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they were shouting out praise to the son of David. They saw him as that Messiah, that Savior. And God, sure enough, kept his promise. Jesus was the son of David. Still is. He, he was killed, but he was raised from the dead, and he will reign forever. What about Amos chapter 9? God says, I'll bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Okay, how do we know that's not talking about when he sent them to Babylon and brought them back? Well, read the next verse. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. And so this is not a spiritualized promise. They're literally in their land. Also, it's, it, it can't be referring to when he brought them back in the, in the 500s after that exile to Babylon, 500s BC, because he said they'll never again be uprooted. Well, that promise wouldn't have come true, right? Because they were uprooted. They were scattered all over the whole world, only to be brought back within the past 100 years. What about Ezekiel 37? One of the great predictions of this. A vision that the prophet Ezekiel received about this very event. It's kind of a creepy vision, and I've actually found a, um, a video rendition of this that was kind of cool. It's about a minute and a half. It's the reading of Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10, along with some visuals of his vision to go along with it. So we're going to roll that, and then we'll talk about it. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, and say to it, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and stood up on their feet, a vast army. I added that little part at the end. <laughs> okay, so he says, they all came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army or a great army. What a creepy vision this is. 
for Ezekiel to go out and to see, to witness. And what I'm arguing is this predicts the regathering of Israel. You know, those bones, that's like, that's like the nation of Israel. And, you know, it's like they're just feeling like we're all dried up and dead, and then God's going to bring them back together again. Now, how do we know I'm not just doing what the Nostradamus people are doing? I see something, I'm like, yeah, that's what this is about. Well, one of the nice things about the Bible is if you're ever confused, just keep reading. A lot of time it explains itself. Check out the next verse. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. (laughs) Therefore I prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh my people, I'm going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Back to the land. I'll put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Do you see how there was kind of two stages there. Kind of the bones and the flesh came on them and then he prophesies again and then they get the spirit of life within them. Some people in this actually see a two-stage regathering, a physical regathering and then later on a spiritual revival among the Jewish nation is what, what the Bible predicts. In fact, even, even today, modern-day Israel, they're in the land, but the vast majority of them are not even believers. They're atheists. And so the spiritual part has not happened yet. The physical regathering looks like it has. He says, I'll settle you in your own land, and then you'll know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. Yes, God is doing this to show his might and his power. And he, God, God only works when, every, when all hope seems lost. When everything seems hopeless... That's when God does his best work. So we know that he's the one. If you keep reading, you see it's obvious this is not the the regathering back in the 500s BC. He says, I'll take the Israelites out of the nations where they've gone. I'll gather them from all around and bring them back into their land. Not just from Babylon, where they were, from all around. My servant David will be king over them and they'll have one shepherd. That never happened at the regathering in the 500s BC. Again, my servant David, that's, that's that language of the Messiah the eternal king over the people of God, over the Israelites. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. No spiritualizing this one and getting off the hook. No saying, well, this is really the church and we really live all over the world. And No, the, the Bible says, we're seeing it here from Jesus and others, that his plan has shifted. The Jews did reject Christ and his message in his day. And the church is mostly composed of non-Jews, although there are, there are Jews who are Christians, for sure. But the Bible promises that God is going to get back to the Jews at some point, that there's going to be a revival among the Jews, and we're going to see things like these happening. He says, they and their children and their children's children will live there forever, and my servant will be their prince forever. That's, again, the language of eternity, forever. That can't be. That can't be the one that happened in the 500s BC, because they got scattered again. In fact, it's not only this, there are dozens of this specific prophecy predicted by different authors in different ways all throughout Scripture. This is truly amazing to see this. It matches the context. It follows the rules of language. There's no pulling a sentence, pulling a phrase out of midair and trying to apply it in some vague way. It correlates with numerous passages. Look at this. Moses, multiple predictions, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Zephaniah, and Zechariah. That's nine different authors 
with multiple predictions. So many predictions of the regathering of Israel. Totally unique and objective. This is something that's never happened. I mean, how many Philistines do you know? How many Amal- you ever met an Amalekite? No. They just kind of, they, they lost their land. They just kind of morphed in with other ethnicities. Not so with the Jews. There's something special there that God is behind. And this is fulfilled against all odds by people who didn't even believe in the Bible. Like I said, a lot of the Jews in the, in the initial movement to get the land back, they weren't even, they were not believers. Russia voted for this forming of the nation state. If they'd voted no, that would have killed the deal. Also, this is despite millennia of anti-Semitism. Century after century, people, especially Christians, maybe not especially Christians, but Christians have certainly played their share in this, have persecuted, killed, enslaved, ghettoed off the Jews, and yet they continue to thrive. They continue to have an identity. They continue to thrive against all odds. Mark Twain commented on this at the turn of the, 20th, the, turn of the 19th century. A famous agnostic or atheist American author from the 1800s. In an essay in Harper's Magazine in 1899, here's what he wrote commenting on the Jewish people. This is before they even got their land back, 50 years before. He says, if statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of has always been heard of. He's made a marvelous fight in this world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind him. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and Roman followed and made a vast noise. They're gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. All things are mortal, but the Jews, all other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret, Twain wonders, of his immortality? Could it be there's something special there that God started 4,000 years ago? Could it be that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable? Could it be that our God is the God in Isaiah 45? He says, who made these things known so long ago? What idol ever told you they would happen? Was it not I, the Lord? There's no other God but me, a righteous God and a Savior. Not only does he declare the end from the beginning, but he's perfectly righteous and he's a Savior. And that's why God gives these prophecies, because he's offering you salvation. And he says, you can check this over here. This unique, these unique predictions that nobody else could possibly mimic. And that verifies the other thing I'm offering, eternal life. He says, let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, and there is no other. Luke 21, part one. Pretty cool stuff. We got two more weeks on this fascinating topic. 
Yeah, God, we don't want to love this world. You've told us where this is all headed. Thank you that you love the people in this world enough to send your one and only Son. And I pray that we would devote our lives to your priorities and that we would find ourselves standing there at the end with you saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray too, Lord, even in times where it just feels like chaos is reigning and um, things seem like they're spinning out of control, I pray that we can remember that you're the one that's in control. And uh, I, pray, I pray for people here who have never received Christ too, God. I pray that they would come into a relationship with the God who predicts the future and offers salvation. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.